We good to go, bro? All right. Welcome to New Polity's newest podcast series. This is called, this is your, this is your podcast, Jake. Yeah, get out of my way. You're leading the way. You tell me. <laughs> Where am I? What am I doing? We are endeavoring on a new podcast series that we are going to call Political Saints. Political Saints. Here's the deal. First, let's. Here's the reason why we, we wanted to do this. This 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 is a real thing. There was a guy came and visited us here in the New Polity offices a while back. I don't know if he still listens to us or not. But um, we we prayed the rosary at some point during the day, mm-hmm. and we we're kind of going around the circle, people de- leading different decades, and and we got to him, and and he didn't know uh, the decade, like what the mystery of the rosary was. Classic problem. I know. We've all been there. Yeah. Well, I mean that is true, right? <laughs> and and he, he this guy probably has a very robust prayer life, and just may not you know include the rosary, or he could be tired or whatever else. I'm not. I don't mean this to judge him, but it was interesting that he traveled so far to come and see us, and yet prayer was not like the reason why he came to see us, you know? And that makes sense. We're a think tank for political philosophy and theology, um, but the point of all of this is to enjoy that intimacy with God, to actually be saints, mm. to actually enjoy him forever with one another. And as in you know, this Christianity thing, you can't do it alone. You ascend with others, you ascend by others, and they ascend by you. And so we wanted to sit down and do this podcast series to say like, all right, we've been talking about a lot of theories, a lot of ideas, but let's see them actually manifested and displayed in the life of God's saints. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's kind of an e- easy thesis for this whole podcast series that if you want to be half decent at politics, you really got to be ascending to holiness. And that if you look at those who have achieved holiness, the saints of God, they were all political. Oh yeah. Without exception. So, we chose a few of these saints at random. I mean, really at random. Actually, that, that's not even an exaggeration. We really just said, we're, we're going to grab these and figure out how they were political. And ended up, they were all very political. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah, you know, Jacob, it makes sense. Because we, we have a tendency in what we might call modernity to imagine certain spots of life that are without God, mm-hmm. right? Or that operate without God, that chug along without Him, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes people criticize me for this because I'll pray for things that they think are assured, like that the bus will come on time, for instance, or <laughs> that the phone will turn on when I push the button. Um, and the reason I do these kind of things is to remind myself that there is no sphere of life, no matter how much we try to section it off as belonging to the world, mm-hmm. that is not in fact created and maintained by God and subsidized right. in all its operation by his angels. Right. right? <laughs> and so and so politics, of course, is is the primary place, I think. Um, I would say politics and technology are, are the two primary places where we imagine the world as going on without God. Right. Mm. So so when we talk about Christians going into politics, we often presume that Christianity is happening as one reality, and mm-hmm. then politics is happening as another reality. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of becoming political is to enter into extrinsically enter into the system that that's operating without reference to Christ and his salvation. 
Um, now, this isn't true. It's not true. And, and, and it leads to, this idea leads to um, sin. Because you end up doing certain things that you wouldn't otherwise do as a Christian because you say, well, insofar as I'm operating this system of politics, mm-hmm. then I have to make concessions, right? It's right. like, well, of course, I don't lie you know, in my family life. I don't lie amongst my friends and community, but I'm doing politics, and so I need to, to lie here <laughs> <laughs> in order to be successful at politics because right. politics the, has been described as a world without God. Right, or you know, we have to be aggressive against neighbor because they hate us, and, mm. and so we can hate them. Right, yeah, um, hatred or wrath mm-hmm. or... Um, yeah, wrath is a big one, you yeah. know, that we can just insult our political enemies and sure. without actually willing their conversion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what what has been at the foundation of everything New Polity has thought about is a very simple premise. It's not that we deserve nothing at all for taking it <laughs> as our premise. It's just that God is everywhere. <laughs> uh, and not just as a sort of divine onlooker, but as, in fact, interior to everything we do. Mm-hmm. God is present. And that means, one of the things that means is that the Christian is the best politician. Now, I know that the facts don't seem to bear this out. <laughs> <laughs> but hold on, but hold let's on. try a different angle. <laughs> yeah, because the, I, the, the, the fact is that a Christian is always a bad politician wherever politics is described a priori as having nothing to do with God and with Christ. Yeah, of course, that's we're just, pretty ruinous at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, actually, the Christian is doing, in his failure to be wise in that way is actually doing politics more perfectly. Yeah. Because in his very failure and his inability to operate the sort of wisdom of the world, mm-hmm. the way that scriptures might describe it, um, he's actually showing a new kind of wisdom. Right. But within a social order where Christ is at the center, to be a Christian, to be holy, is to be the most efficacious political actor within that system. So you can see how there's this like dynamic range for the saint who would be political, which mm-hmm. is that where politics is wicked, he is a destructive force. Mm-hmm. But in his destructive in his destruction, he is creating room for a new form of politics, right? Where his efficaciousness grows to the degree that conversions happen, to the degree that he inspires a new way of doing things, to the mm-hmm. degree that, like for instance, love of neighbor really becomes the order of the day for doing politics, the one who loves his neighbor the most is the most efficacious politician. And you see this, I think, sometimes in in like the transition from sort of big politics to small politics. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's more incidental, but I do think you see this, where where someone might have like a, a big city political attitude and then try to like transfer it to a small town. And people are like, whoa, 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 hey man, that doesn't work around here. Like, yeah, you know, we're we're friends here. You gotta you know, gotta get to know this guy, etc. You can't just start. Totally. You know, what I mean, that I made that lot. mistake when yeah. I moved here. Yeah, 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 yeah throwing yeah. your weight around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, we don't weigh that much here. <laughs> so, that, I mean, it's incidental. I'm not saying that this is like, you know, small town is the perfection of Christianity. I'm just saying that there's obvious times where efficaciousness is still found in practicing some version of christianity right yeah and actually you know, there's a lot i just to jump back at the person that is hoping to be efficacious in the this worldliness of politics or this yeah. world's form of politics and then fails at it yeah. is actually a sign of a pretty good person yeah. you know or somebody that's heading along 
that somebody wants like a good, you know, Christian lad coming out of a Catholic college and wants to be a senator and then absolutely gets destroyed when he goes to D.C. for the first time mm -hmm. as an intern and just goes bumbling around and doesn't make it, you know, up the ranks or anything, shows that he actually has so habituated himself to a life of virtue that he's having it's a hard time to actually dehabituate himself or yeah, unhabituate yeah, yeah, himself yeah, yeah. into a life of, of vice. Right. And so at that point, we just say, hey, give up, man. Try, try, <laughs> try, try some better politics, you know? While, of course, yeah. leaving room for, you know, Christ's command that we are, what, innocent as doves and cunning as serpents, right? So once in holiness, we recognize mm -hmm. the wickedness of a, of a system that we're that holiness stands opposed to. Yeah. Then you're able to to deal with that system, but it's as one going to war. That's right. But yeah. Most people don't realize that. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. it is war, you yeah. know. <laughs> and and that is uh that is one of the most freeing moments. I think you know another you know thing to say is that, um, you know we're going to talk about a number of saints. Kind of this first round, we'll we'll talk about Alcuin of York today. Yeah. Blessed Alcuin of York, Saint Catherine of Siena. You know, blessed Franz Jägerstater, mm -hmm. um, you know, blessed Clemens August von Gallen, St. Thomas More, these type of guys. Uh, St. King St. Louis Gotta. the Ninth. Gotta. And, uh, but one of the things that's just so amazing about these, these things is that they really understood what was happening at the time. They really understood the political situation mm. is stemming from a particular disposition in the people around them sure. so that they were able to actually be more effective within. Not that efficaciousness is the real end of all these things. Holiness is. But they were, in their holiness, efficacious because they were penetrating in their analysis yeah. and could speak right to the problems yeah. uh, that, that, they were be, that they were seeing. Yeah. So, but... but Blessed Alcuin of York is actually a pretty good place to start because he actually writes a treatise on politics and how politics is only ever fully itself when it is the life of virtue. All right, let's talk about Alcuin. Well, do you want to give us a first intro to who he was? Uh, he well, Alcuin was a deacon uh, living in the time of Charlemagne, the Great. Well, that's a redundancy. Yeah. Uh, Charles the Great, the Great. He's the greatest great. And he was, um, we don't know much about his birth, uh, the, I think the life of Charlemagne by Reinhardt, am I saying that right? Uh, it says that he was born of English, of noble English stock, but of course they say that about everyone, so, so who knows? <laughs> um, but he uh, grew up and was under, um, he was a student of his archbishop, whose name was Eckhart, no. I forget. Not uh, we're bad at historical facts here. <laughs> <laughs> Albert. <laughs> no. uh, but he grew up and was um, studied the liberal arts and um, eventually became the uh, sort of head teacher at his own school. Um, ultimately, that was in Aachen. Uh, and he joined up with Charlemagne's court uh, and became the teacher for Charlemagne's children, as well as any young men of promise that um, the emperor would send uh, to become educated. And so all his life was centered around education and around 
the idea of raising children to become men. Um, so his relationships are are fascinating because they're always the relationships Who is Albert? of a. Who is right. Albert? Yeah. Just question. Uh, <laughs> and um, so this is actually this yeah. is a you know kind of a crazy moment in his life where Albert sends Alcuin. Um, to meet the Pope, but says, you know, you really should stop along the way when you get to the mainland to see Charlemagne. And Charlemagne is so taken with him. Charlemagne is, is a, you know, he's he's not a dummy. He just can't read. Can't all. read, yeah. And he's so taken by Alcuin's um, mind, by his learning. You know, Alcuin really, you know, next to the Venerable Bede was the greatest mind of his time. Yeah, and, and maybe we and, should contextualize the need that Charlemagne had for yeah. a mind like Alcuin's mm-hmm. uh, because um, we're at the point of history that gets called the Carolingian Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically, there is a need within Christendom for a a just radical shaking up of everyone mm-hmm. because power is being consolidated. Right, you have a Holy Roman Empire in Charlemagne. You have new people coming under Christian dominion through conquest, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so there is a crisis in the church where that where people are living Christianity as a culture, yeah, right. But but constantly in their lives, proving that there is no inwardness to this Christianity. There is not holiness in the people, and you can see this. Uh, it's a little unique, <laughs> but you can see this as an an analogy to our culture, right? Where you have the difference, of course, is that we have had a kind of long fall away from Christianity, as it were, and what we're looking at here is more the the many people who are coming to Christianity uh, from paganism, yeah, but often coming under what what are kind of dubious circumstances. It's like suddenly, uh, because uh, you lost the war, <laughs> you're Christian now. <laughs> and so, um, and so, Charlemagne was very aware of this, and the whole Carolingian Renaissance had a strong sense that Christianity was something that comes from the heart. And the mystery was how to get it to come out of people's heart, because you don't get to just baptize people and then suddenly they're living Christian lives. Mm -hmm. Now, for Charlemagne, the three places, and I think it was quite right, that he saw um, conversion being possible was in education, in liturgy, and then in continued conquest of the pagans. Mm. Um, now in liturgy, Alcuin was a godsend. This was a man who understood, I mean, let's put it this way. Charlemagne wanted to centralize the liturgy a bit. You had a lot of different things going on throughout Christendom. And what his goal was, was to make the Roman form that that the popes were celebrating in Rome. Yep. Consistent throughout the kingdom. Yeah, it's actually funny in these these old letters that it does really. I mean, they use the same language that we do, the old form and the, and the new yeah. new Roman form and such. So their own liturgical yes. debacles yeah. at the time. Yeah, but, no, it's true yeah. because sometimes trads will will have this idea uh, that the old form um, sort of rose up as a what they call the old form now, the extraordinary form of the mass. Yeah, rose up as a sort of purely organic development. To which the Novus Ordo is this sort of like violent imposition, yeah. and and if if what they mean is simply that, um, yes, there was a, a historically unique decision, right, to implement the Novus Ordo. Mm-hmm. They're of course they're right. Like mm-hmm. we're not we're not saying the Novus Ordo is some organic you know thing in that sense, uh, but if they mean simply that 
if, if they imply that the extraordinary form developed in somehow a peaceful organic ma- matter. I mean, they're just being ahistorical. Uh, Charlemagne suppressed other rights. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and that's it was happened to Trent and such right. as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. and there's continual development and change that happens for the 500 years afterwards. I mean, this is like, yeah. a, this is, you know, this is just part of the history of the church. But, but yeah. more importantly for the Carolingians, yeah. they didn't really have the same like ideological of, battles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that wasn't yeah. what was really happening. Their concern was that Christianity was real and interior to people. Yeah. So St. Boniface of this time, uh, he's, he's writing a letter um, and he's to his bishop and he's worried. So he's doing missionary work. St. Boniface is out with the pagans. You know, he's the chopping down the pagan trees guy, right? <laughs> But his his concern is, in fact, that uh, there's a lack of education in the clergy. Mm. So he notes a time when he sees a baptism take place and the priest baptizes the new Christian in the name of, and what was it? It was the in the name of the fatherland, <laughs> Nomine Patria, <laughs> which is, of course, like just a, a mistake of Latin. And his concern is, is is this baptism valid because these guys are so uneducated that they're getting the words of baptism wrong. Right. And interestingly, I mean, some people have this idea that the medieval age is, I don't know where they get this. Maybe you can explain this, but some people have this idea that the medieval age is very rigorous. Yeah. And so they expect, well, the answer is like, no, you must, if you don't get the formula right, then you're, the baptism is invalid. Um, But actually the response he got was if the intention of the priest was to baptize in the name of the father and son, and the Holy spirit, then the, failure to get the words right doesn't matter which is different than our current crisis of people being baptized with the with the we right the we baptized yeah. so the i where yeah. it is an intention of the priest well, and, the and actually this comes up at the same time it's so funny i we didn't talk about this beforehand but the um this is organic development this is you're watching it before your <laughs> two little plants uh, but yeah i was recently reading this and, and a lot of questions were coming before the pope at the same time yeah. regarding this and, and most of the times they're saying like nope baptize him again you did it wrong yeah. You should have known better, you yep, know, yep. And, and you like purposely changed this or was so far off. Yeah. But in that one case, it was kind of an exception. It was the one time I found in at least whatever Denzinger's worth, a fair bit, I suppose, uh, <laughs> where where that was actually allowed. But, um, but anyway, but anyway, no matter what you make of that or the final conclusions is that it was an uneducated yeah, clergy. Yeah, uneducated people. So in yeah. Alcuin, Charlemagne sees someone who can help him to unify the Roman uh, right to mm-hmm. unify the way of worship of mm-hmm. the Christian world, and that was especially true of of uh, Charlemagne's love of the Psalms and of the Psalter, regularizing the way the office was prayed by the monastic orders. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sh- and to be clear, like we are in a age of sacral kingship, um, they all referred his court all referred to Charlemagne as the new David, the Lord David, yes. and he was yeah. present at all of the of the liturgy, not just the mass, but in fact, you know, morning prayer, daytime prayer, evening prayer, mm-hmm. the, the names they had for those things. Um, <laughs> and he would call, and Charlemagne, would, who, who couldn't read, nevertheless, was, was sharp enough to call out mistakes that the choir made. And he was, he was a fearsome man. He was very concerned with the right order of the day. So he'd call out a monk. Can you imagine? You sing the wrong, uh, you know, a- antiphon, and, and Charlemagne yells at you from the from the pew. I don't know. I didn't have pews. <laughs> my, my, that's another liturgical invention. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's going on. And then in terms of um, education, uh, 
Alcuin is someone who has a grasp of Virgil. He has a grasp of what they had mm-hmm. of, of the Greek authors, Greek and Roman authors. Um, he has a grasp. He's been trained in rhetoric and astronomy and physics, these, these sort of uh, uh, pillars of, of a liberal education, what mm-hmm. we call liberal education. Um, but he also sees, but he's not, I mean, sometimes we take this the wrong way because we think of it as if the pagan learning was sort of unconnected with the Christian mission here, like, mm. or, or something you did in order to get like the natural sphere, right. And then you kind of move to supernatural truths and theology. Right. Right. And that's not really how they thought at all. Yeah. Um, so Alcuin has the education necessary to, uh, train up the court into the service of Christianity. His big concern throughout is preaching. Yep. That the reality of a Christian culture <clears throat> does not come about by mechanism. Right? Maybe we could start here because this it, seems to be. Yeah. I mean, maybe even the thing to say is that this, this is a guy that's like, it's not quite writing textbooks, but he's kind of writing textbooks. Like he's he's yeah, really yeah. working from the ground up. He's starting these cathedral schools. Yep. Like he's educating people in grammar. He invents the question mark. Yeah, that's a, that's a big deal. That's crucial. Uh, he's he writes kind of the first. I mean, I, I'll use the term textbook, but it's like problem solving and logic and mathematics. I mean, he's really doing the groundwork of creating curricula. Yeah. But it is for this end that you're mentioning. It is ultimately for preaching. Yeah, exactly. Because the people going through these schools are ultimately supposed to be able to take what they've learned and then use it to preach the gospel in the idiom of the people. Yep. Like yeah. to know what the people need to be saved mm-hmm. and to give it to them. Mm-hmm. And this is very different than the idea of education for its own sake, right? The idea that you you sort of achieve what the knowledge that there is to know, mm-hmm. and then you try to identically repeat it in the pupil, mm-hmm. so the pupil has it as well. It's rather you achieve the resource and the tools and the strength, the virtue, really, mm-hmm. um, that you need in order to help save the sinner, yeah. right? In order to know precisely what to say, uh, and, and this had a form in Christendom, and it was preaching. Right. Uh, and and I I bring it up. Um, as opposed to a mechanistic idea, because that really was one of the central debates. Um, what, if Alcuin brought anything to our question of like, well, what does it look like for a Christian to do politics? Mm-hmm. Um, we might look at his debate with Charlemagne um, and the court about what to do with the newly conquered pagans. Yeah. Because there was a certain uh, faction and a certain line of thought that mm-hmm. said, look, we are Christians, and so we are bound together by common baptism, right? Um, now, baptism at this point uh, was understood to be, I mean, it, it's simply true about baptism, but I think it was, it was very well put that this was the oath, as it were, binding us all together. Mm-hmm. They use the term sacramentum, which actually has its origins in the oath that the uh, Roman military would give. So, you know, you enter the military and you basically make an oath to defend the Constitution, or the Roman Empire, <laughs> against all enemies, foreign <laughs> and domestic. Stands, right? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you're, so you're in the military and, and you have, and this was seen as like the ultimate um, 
sort of act within the empire, uh, and then the ultimate bond of fraternity, right, was between um, soldiers within the empire. Now, as the Roman Empire fell, Christianity took the kind of language and form of sacramentum, but began to apply it not to the martial act of the adult male, Mm -hmm. but to the receptive act of the infant. (laughs) So the baby becomes a soldier in Christ's army. The baby becomes, I mean, this is... This put is, soldier in the church militant. But it's radical, yeah, right? Like yeah. the 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 the, the yeah. little the little creature that can't answer for himself is the one who takes the oath to belong to the church militant. Mm. And it shows that the whole culture has has taken the kind of material uh, that's fallen all around it mm-hmm. and built up something new with a new a new living soul, as yeah, it were. Yeah. So there's this unity in the sacrament. And the king and the priest, the temporal and the spiritual powers, are operating in concert. They're attempting to operate in concert because they don't see them. There's no church and state, right? There's no secular. Mm-hmm. They are both sacral people, right? Mm-hmm. They both are church people, yep. ecclesial beings who have a common, what Andrew Jones calls business, mm-hmm. the business of the peace mm-hmm. and the faith, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you can see this, I'm not going to belabor the point, in Charlemagne's coronation by the Pope, yep. right? That there's yeah. this certain visible unity. And then just in the fact that, you know, in contemporary descriptions of Charlemagne, he is not like, well, he's the secular ruler and we'll take care of the religious stuff. He's David. He's David. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So he is... He's the defender of the law, which yeah. is leading us ultimately to Christ. Right. I mean, because we get the, you know, hindsight of the directionality that law is supposed to lead us. Is yeah. that it's supposed to move from that exterior into the interior. Right. And that's where this whole idea of teaching and preaching comes right, into play. Right, right. So as yeah. as David of the old law yeah. was responsible for that preparation of the Jewish people to receive the revelation of Christ, who mm-hmm. gives us the grace to interiorize the old law so that we can live it from our hearts, we can live it anew. Yeah. Uh, this isn't seen as a simply historical moment, but rather it's a moment that's always present in every human life. Like everyone moves from the old law to the new law, mm-hmm. which means that it needs to be governance that's related to those people who are still under law, mm-hmm. right? To sinners and to the ignorant, to wherever that darkness is, David stands opposed to it. Why? Not for the sake of any kind of, you know, regime of order. Like the point is not that everyone gets subjected under Charlemagne and so we have a Christian empire. The point is that sin, wherever it rears its head, meets Charlemagne as its enemy so that the faithful can become free so that they no longer have to uh, worry about um, the enforcing of the of the law because the law is in their hearts, right? Mm. Okay, so this is the kind of logic of this age. It's being worked out on the ground. And one of the places where Charlemagne is failing is in his forced baptisms. Um, and it's Alcuin who reminds him, I think, of of what's best in Charlemagne because Charlemagne is really like, I don't know. And the more I read about him, I just, I just think he was really one of the boys. I mean, he very enthusiastic, very scary when he was in a temper, uh, big parties, big feasts. He was all about it. Um, and very given to like wild ideas. Uh, and so he, but he was surrounded by people who were 
who recognized in him like holiness and power that was efficacious. And so Alcuin, who is obviously, if you read his letters to Charlemagne, obviously kind of scared of the guy, uh, loves him so much that he's willing to stand up to him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's willing to uh, perform acts of fraternal correction to the emperor, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about a little more about how Alcuin is evidence, I think, of the political saint, like one of the qualities of which is to always be ready to correct. Yeah. But Charlemagne is is invading, um, he's conquering the Saxon people, and he is forcing them to be baptized. And Alcuin um, has a lot to say about that. Um, He says that... Wait. Oh, man, now I'm at the wrong spot. That is about the right spot, you know? He says, wait. Wait. Yeah. Hold on just a second here. Okay, so he says, Charlie. and part of the idea is the idea that the sacraments operate like magic. This is part of the problem. You can conquer people. As long as you get the baptism on their heads, Christianity is going to be efficacious. Um, and against this, Alcuin says the following. This is in one of his letters to Charlemagne. Careful thought must be given to the right method of preaching and baptizing that the washing of the body in baptism be not made useless by lack in the soul of an understanding of the faith. Now, he goes on, and this defends us from, from the Gospels and then from Jerome, um, Jerome's commentaries. Mm. And this is a typical Alcuin. Like, he makes a point, he defends it in Scripture, and he defends it in the Fathers, then he's done. <laughs> Often when you read about like introductions to Alcuin, they'll say, well, he wasn't a creative thinker. Um, and and it's true in a certain respect because like his role really was education, uh, and so he wasn't sitting there being like, "Look, I've had a novel idea." Yeah, right? yeah. He's and a master teacher. He's yeah. a teacher. Yeah. So you know, you you look to Augustine for a certain genius of the faith, mm-hmm. um, but you look to Alcuin for a teacher of the faith. Mm-hmm. I think, and you can see his you can see it in his preaching. Now, but what is he saying here? He's saying that uh, it's not sufficient to baptize where preaching is understood somehow as as being some other thing not flowing from and responding to the graces that are present at baptism. Right. So if in baptism, you receive a disposition to receive the truth, right? Yeah. And so at... Well, you're having, freed from original sin. You're yeah. freed from uh, essentially this hardness of heart that blinds you to grace, that makes faith impossible. Right, uh, you're infused with these virtues in baptism, um, but they really are virtues in the sense of like you really do uh, act in charity, act in faith. You have to act in hope. You have to act in temperance and fortitude and justice in order to become holy. Right. You don't just get it as any observation. No, it disposes you to that <laughs> right, life, right? right? And so it needs to, even if it disposes you to receive the truth so that in in your intellect, so that you might desire it in your will, so yeah. that you can then enact it in your being, then it requires somebody tells you what the truth is. Yeah, yeah. And so the fact that Charlemagne is conquering people, forcibly baptizing people, yeah. or, uh, or threatening them... Yeah with death if they weren't to be baptized is really kind of missing the point. He's trying to, he's, he's a Christian. He's a sincere Christian. He loves the faith 
and yet he's still ruling like a pagan. Right, right. And yeah. and Alcuin is saying, hey man, there's something that you're completely missing. And so he writes yeah. this to him and he says, look, you have to start with this education, giving them mm -hmm. giving them milk before you can turn to meat. Yeah, he's, he's, and, and he turns to the, you want to read the part about tithing here? Yeah, yeah. So it's two parts. Yeah. So he tells Charlemagne, therefore you should consider in your wisdom whether it is right to impose the yoke of tithes upon a simple people who are beginners in the faith, making a full levy from every house. We should ask if the apostles who were taught by the Lord himself and sent out to preach to the world require the payment of tithes in any place. We know it is good for our property to be tithed, but it is better to lose the tithe than destroy the faith. So this is one thing, and just in case people don't know this, is that tithing today is kind of a loose term. And we know that it comes from the Old Testament. We know that there's something about 10% that's going on. But we also know, or at least assume, that that is still not binding for us, that that's no longer binding for us today. And it's true. But that's we're kind of in a rare moment in church history for that. The tithe actually was binding for so many mm -hmm. for so long, uh, to the point that even at the Council of Trent, if you were not tithing, you were actually excommunicated. Yeah, because the tithe for the medieval Christians, it recognized the reality of the church, right? Mm -hmm. The church is the converting people of God on earth. It is a real family, mm -hmm. right? There's real power here. And it's not simply a, a spiritual reality, if by spiritual you mean does not take up the material within itself, which mm -hmm. is bad idea of spiritual if that's if that's what you mean <laughs> so so the so the tithe indicates our belonging to a real body yeah i mean you kind of think about this it's like if you're american what do you have to do you have to pay taxes because right. you're just part of the body yeah. you know you got to do it you know there's a there's a big problem of that all throughout the old testament of foreign nations charging yeah. taxes or tithes upon the nation of israel a lot of church fathers were pretty you know enraged by that that Rome continued to do that mm -hmm. in, the, in the early church mm -hmm. um, because they are not the legitimate authority and the true body that we are supposed to be a part of. Right. The true body is the church. And yet Alcuin, knowing this, yes. living this, says we should not charge the tithe on new converts. The, yeah, those neophytes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and the reason why is because they need to be brought into a point where they're not just doing it externally, but willing it internally yeah. to know exactly why they're doing what Christians should be doing. Yeah, I mean, when he uses the example of the apostles, mm -hmm. in another place, this is uh, he wrote a letter to Charlemagne's treasurer, Meganfrid. Uh, he says, uh, so this is both about baptism and about tithes. Faith, as St. Augustine says, is a matter of will, not necessity. A man can be attracted into faith, not forced. He can be forced to be baptized, but that is useless for faith, except in infancy. A grown man should answer for himself about his beliefs and desires. If he professes faith falsely, he will not have true salvation. If the light yoke and easy load of Christ were preached to the hard Saxon race, so these people who have just mm -hmm. uh, been conquered, if, the, if this light yoke was preached as keenly as tithes were levied and the penalty of law imposed for the smallest faults. Perhaps they would not react against the right of baptism. The teachers of the faith should be schooled in the examples of the apostles 
they should be preachers, not predators, trusting in the goodness of him who said, do not take purse or wallet. And this might seem really obvious in some regard. It's like, yeah, of yeah. course you can't like, you know, force somebody into the faith. But what we have to realize is the fact that the faith was absolutely everything. Yeah. That the faith taught us how to live with one another. Mm-hmm. And thus, in, in the most true sense, the faith was inherently political. If politics is the art of living to, with one another well, yeah. then faith directs us how that is done. Yeah. And so to be able to be more virtuous, more full of faith, means that, that we are going to be better politicians, better enactors of this uh, of this political reality. Now, for Alquin, he he ends up needing to like settle, slow down and explain this a little bit more thoroughly to Charlemagne. So he writes this treatise to him on rhetoric. Now, rhetoric's a kind of an interesting subject because it's you know classically it's the the art of persuasion, mm-hmm. right? You know, but he links it together. He says that it's inherently tied together with the life of virtue. And, and this is this is such an important point, um, something that directs a lot of our thought here at New Polity, but of course it's, you know, we're just riffing off the tradition here, is that when I try and force somebody to do something that they don't want to do, I'm, I say, say I'm that terrible Nazi, you know, with the gun at your door, and I tell you to get out. If you get out, you're not really obeying me. You're not entru- you're not entrusting yourself to me. You are fleeing the occasion of fear. You're, or in fear, you're fleeing, really. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. F- you're fleeing the you're occasion of, of harm. You're obeying yourself, your own inclinations, your own desires, not my insight into the world. And for, for Blessed Alquin, he says, true politics is done when you have real persuasion, when you have demonstrated somebody the truth eloquently, yes, to demonstrate the compelling power of truth itself, mm-hmm. but so that you might join me yeah. rather than fear me right. in the common work that Christ had set out for us. Yeah, and, and, the, and the, the tithe is alarming to the New Saxons because it cannot but appear mm-hmm. to a newly converted people as the same method as the paganism they're used to. Mm-hmm. And so that is to say that what belonging together really is, is that you are in fear, centralized under a power who extracts from you a certain degree of your own power through the mechanism of money, and then uses it to rule over you, mm-hmm. which is how Jesus Christ describes the lords of the earth, right? That they right. appear as benefactors, but in reality they lord it over um, right. those they rule. Um, and so what Alcuin is saying is that there needs to be mercy directed to people so that they can come to trust in the reality of the church as something different, right? The church is a unity of love. It is not a unity of fear. Right. right, right, right. And to the people who are preaching Christianity or imposing Christianity mm-hmm. in this sense, or in this case, what does Alcuin preach? He says, you need to trust God says, why are you not trusting uh, the goodness of him who said, do not take purse or wallet, right? Because this is what often happens, is that an apparent use of an efficacious system of power 
uh, is in fact a lack of trust in God to provide. And Alcuin is, is childlike in this way again and again. Um, it's not that he's a believer in magic or something like that. Like he, he's very wise and he understands how our social systems work, how politics in, in a worldly sense works. He's not ignorant of this. But again and again, he says, it is at the end of the day, trust in God and holiness of life that is going to achieve the ends that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. It's not the tithe, yeah. right? The tithe is a fruit of a faithful people. Yes. Right? It is not the means by which a faithful people are created. And this is very similar in a way to his, his, his teaching on baptism here, right? Which is that baptism is not something that stops, as it were, when it's over, when the, when the sacrament is performed. It, that is the beginning of your life in the church, right? But the idea that this makes you a Christian, like mm-hmm. there's nothing more to do, is to simply misunderstand the totalizing historical nature of the church, mm-hmm. that it wants to reach into your heart through the entirety of your life and convert you, right? And that when you die, at best you can say, you know, I have been, I have been converted. I have been baptized, right? Um, which is, of course, this is a typical Catholic response to um, Protestantism, right? Like if you have, <laughs> or, or sort of born again, yeah, evangelical. When were you saved? Yeah, yeah, when, yeah, yeah. yeah. When were you saved? They ask, and you know, one of the things I was taught was to respond with, "Well, uh, I w- I was saved, and I am being saved." Right. You know, I don't know how effective this was as far as a rhetorical <laughs> strategy goes, but the but the point is clear that what we offer is is a holistic view of life to say that you know life is a whole. Baptism is delivering me from sin and offering me salvation, but I am I am a whole life, <laughs> uh, and I'm moving through time and. Just as the Saxons needed to move from spiritual milk to spiritual meat, mm-hmm. um, so too every human life needs to move from spiritual milk to spiritual meat. Right. And you said that this might seem simple or obvious, but I think it's in fact it's in fact an achievement and a very slow achievement of Christianity. But then people like Alcuin, um, you know, like its normalness is in fact. A fruit of their hard a fruit work. Fruit of their work. Yeah. Kill, uh, uh, the idea that Christianity can persuade and that we should put aside um, our lack of trust uh, in God and instead uh, believe in the convincing power of the gospel. Not to say we put aside all cultural sociological mechanisms, but to put them in right order. Yeah. Right? The tithe comes last, not first. Right. Right. Uh, baptism comes after you sincerely desire it yep. you don't just expect the desires to come up after you baptize right 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 it like puts things within right order but that right order was fought for precisely because what christendom is is the conversion of pagan empire out of itself into the light of grace right and, and there's one thing that i you know you kind of brought to my attention yesterday and and then i got addicted all night and stayed up till 4 a.m reading about it is is this matter of the sanctuary this kind of debacle that comes oh, yeah. up later in in Alquin's life and and I think it, it is the perfect uh, perfect glimpse into his conviction okay that all politics is about persuasion for the sake in persuasion what to or what of but Christ 
Um, so what are sanctuary laws? <laughs> this is one of these things where you say that we're being converted out of Roman paganism and yeah. into something new. This is one of those things that really did not exist in the ancient pagan world. There's some things that are reminiscent of it, but but nothing like this and, and nothing that becomes a normal moray of uh, civilian life. Yeah, and you might know sanctuary laws as very simply, if a criminal is yep. um, running away, running away from, from the consequences of his crime, uh, he can get a reprieve from the arm of the law by making it to a church. Yep. No, in the things that kind of seem to have been in existence in the in the ancient Roman world is that if say I uh I kill your cow mm. and you're coming after me trying to to kill me because I took your beloved beef and and wasted it. I didn't I didn't disembowel it. All mm. the meat cooked, mm. and it was ruined. Oh. Mm. All that tenderloin. So, I run over to the temple of Juno. And I try and hold out there. Well, if this ever happened, it was be I. It was kind of a holding pen. We're mm. waiting for the state to come over and evaluate the situation. Mm. That is not what develops in the Christian world. First of all, this practice becomes widespread. It's amazing. I mean, even the fact that uh, that Alcuin is writing about it as an Englishman to uh, in a in a I guess in in a French context. Yeah. And it, and who's also involved, but a Spanish bishop, yeah. and then the, the, there's also like a Frankish king that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. coming up. I mean, this thing is universal over Christendom, and it and it really starts to develop in the fifth century, and then it just catches on like wildfire from there. So the idea here is that if the if I'm running away, I can go to the sanctuary, but why to the sanctuary? Well, precisely because. This is the point where in my fear, I am driven to something good and that somebody now can instruct me in what I should actually be doing. They can guide me in the penance that I uh, should do in, in making restitution for what I've done and that there can be a real reorientation, redirection yeah, into, mean, what I, into, a, into the spiritual life that yeah. I should have been leading. Yeah, and it's a common misunderstanding of modern people who do not believe that the spiritual is real mm-hmm. to look back on sanctuary and presume that it's a cynical mechanism for getting away with something, mm-hmm. which is very stupid because, like, uh, not only is the spiritual real, <laughs> but it also presumes a a worldview that um, belongs in modernity being implanted back into time, right? Um no one would have gone along with it if it was if it was this way. Uh, so one of the things that they presume, but is not in fact true, is that the criminal who uh, calls upon uh, the right of sanctuary is somehow off scot free. Um, is not true. Um, what he is what he is calling for is judgment by the bishop at first, but then the church more generally, mm-hmm. um, and for penance. And for the bishop to set a real penance for his crime, what he is saved from is capital punishment, right? And I think torture in most most mm. cultural contexts. Um, but he's not. What what's not happening is that he is somehow uh, off scot free. That presumption it, it comes from the idea that only the temporal power punishes crime, 
but there's only one uh, sovereign way of dealing with the criminal. Yeah, and they're it's the state in some guise or another. Yep, an administrative act. Yeah, to catalog what someone has done mm-hmm. and what's the requisite punishment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that corresponds to their act. But obviously, in Christianity, the concern can never just be for the maintenance of order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there would never simply be that as the end of politics. Like we just need to maintain order here. Right. That would lead to something like a one way of dealing with crime. Yeah. Right. Rather, within Christianity, the fundamental concern is that the sinner be saved. Yeah. Right. Now, it was actually in early Christianity the prerogative that that those who fled to the bishop would receive sanctuary. Right. So all of a sudden, I kill your cow. I'm running away from you in the market. Thank God the successor of St. Timothy is there. Yeah. I run up and Scram. hug his legs. Scram. Can't touch me. Safe base, yeah. you know, or whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> it is, because, and the bishops desired it because not out of any um, aggrandizing of their power, which is sort of how we read things back into history, but first and foremost, because they had a duty to free uh, the imprisoned and to convert the sinner that he may live. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was part of their call. And so they actually, as a bishop, had a debt to begin with. Their debt was that they were called and they were given the power uh, and privilege that they were given precisely for the conversion of sinners. And so for them, they needed, I mean, we talk about this all the time, how love creates institutions, right? And so when the love is for the conversion of sinners, you Mm -hmm. can expect this and know this to be the case of a society when you see institutions developed for the forgiveness of sins. Now, confession is an obvious one, but sanctuary really comes from that. Yes. comes from we need, this is so important. We love converting sinners so much that we are not going to leave it simply to the auspices of chance, right? Yes. But we are going to institutionalize it. If you touch this bishop, right? then it, you are now entering into a mode of dealing with your crime that is oriented towards your salvation. Mm-hmm. That's how it starts. That's how sanctuary starts. Right. right? Yep. Uh, in, in, um, yeah, in, in sort of late antiquity, moving out of late, late antiquity. And then what happens then? So we can understand Alcuin. Yeah, then, then it moves from the bishop is safe base, in yeah. that case, yeah, yeah, yeah. the point of reconciliation with God and and then with God to neighbor, it it gets it's extended to churches as well, yeah. and particularly that they must flee at altare dei that to the very altar of God. Yeah, yeah. And and again, this is for this express purpose of of spiritual renewal. What ultimately breaks down the system, just to kind of show that later on, this happens actually first and foremost by Henry the Eighth. Everything starts with that guy, man. Henry, wow. come on, bro. I'm going to have some words with, with you in purgatory. <laughs> 1530s, and it really wasn't just him. Uh, Francois France starts to break it down. The Pope even starts to alight some of the um, kind of restrictions that the church holds against the state. Yeah, the Pope starts to uh, sort of cut down the number of crimes that you could Call sanctuary for yeah. yeah, yeah. So if if I murdered somebody and then fled to the church, sorry, buddy, we're going to be able to grab you out of the mm-hmm. out of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so these things really started the transition, but they but they transitioned out as soon as the church was operating as a means by which to handle and catalog 
criminal activity. So in that case, yeah. the church just becomes a branch of the administrative state or the development of the, the government, which was becoming more administrative. Yeah. And in that, in that situation, it just becomes inefficient. So because you have two different people that are trying to do the same job, let's just put it all under the same yeah, yeah, yeah. banner and get on with it. Yeah, and, and so that was the argument. Yeah, and just to clarify, like the, the change that seems to happen is that the church became, uh, b- because of the limitations on what crimes would count, the church became more of a holding pen, as you saw in paganism. Exactly. Where it's not that there is a, a route to forgiveness because both, both the temporal and the spiritual are pursuing the, the salvation of the sinner as their goal, but rather the increasingly the temporal power is pursuing um, simply order. Yes. And the church is pursuing a different end, mm-hmm. that is to say forgiveness. And so it, it becomes more that the church is holding criminals for the state to arrive. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly it. Certainly, it's not to be completely cynical. I mean, certainly advocating on their behalf. Like there was, there was... You know, it takes a long time to kill a good thing. <laughs> um, but Carl Schumacher, I think it's Carl. Anyway, Schumacher is, is, is the name of this guy. He yeah. he talks about the transition is, uh, in this way, that the church, kind of at the end of this time that you're mentioning, the church still defended sanctuary, but it defended it primarily as one of its own jurisdictional prerogatives, not as an avenue to spiritual redemption or the peaceful settlement of disputes. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, you lose the plot. That the original reason that built the institution in the first place changed, and as a result, you're going to change the institution. It's true. And you start to see that a little bit here, and this is the, the scenario that happens between Alcuin and Charlemagne. Yeah. So here's what happens. I have to say, when reading these letters, it like I got very stressed out for something that happened a thousand years ago. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, poor Alcuin. I mean, he is just... Just nerve wracked because he gets into a conflict with Charlemagne, who he obviously loves and admires more than anyone else in the world, and obviously is scared of more than anyone else in the world. <laughs> I'm just feeling for him the whole time. Yeah, this all happens in 802, yeah. just a couple of years before Alcuin dies, and and he's and he's starting to he's writing to Charlemagne, he's writing to to the bishop that's involved, yeah. he's now writing to a couple of his former students who are now judges. And, and, he, and he says to them that there's this man that committed a most heinous crime. And he flees mm-hmm. from his captors and the government. And he, and, he, and he comes to us here at St. Martin's Abbey. And we give him sanctuary. Well, then you have the bishop mm-hmm. who sends eight of his men into the church. Now, this is, I'm just going to start the reading because it gets kind of dramatic. Eight leaders enter the church with our bishop on a Sunday, not just any day, but on a Sunday. They seize the prisoner, profane the house of God, and insulted, insulted St. Martin, the confessor of Christ, actually breaking in past the altar rails. The brothers drove them out from before the altar. This, that's the monks there. If they say otherwise, they lie. And he ends with this. Not one of them bowed his head before the altar of God mm-hmm. at that time. Okay, so here you find, and these, these were men not just sent by the king, but sent by the bishop. Mm-hmm. 
and they go into breaking the laws of sanctuary and they try and seize this prisoner and drag him back out mm -hmm. for him to meet his punishment. And the, and the monks, knowing the rightful order and authority of the church, protect the, protect the man. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a number of like amazing things about this. The first is that we have to realize that the church, in her great authority, is keeping a distance or keeping in check the power of the king. His sovereignty is not complete. It has an extent. It is limited. It is finite. His power is derivative. The church's power is absolute. She binds, she binds. She's, and, and so when you have the church making this declaration of sanctuary, and then the, the king trying to usurp that, He's actually trying to usurp the proper authority of God. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's number one. The, the second thing is, that's very interesting, is that these men are clearly not pious. Mm -hmm. They don't bow before the altar. They storm past the altar rails. Mm -hmm. Those for Alquin are not people that he trusts to lead the criminal in his penance. Mm -hmm. If the goal really is salvation, if the goal really is to choose, to know the good and willingly choose the good, then this is one of the things that he says on his treatise on, on politics, is that the person must be existentially familiar with the good. They can only persuade to something that they intimately know. And these men betray their ignorance of the good here right. by their irreverence and right. by their blasphemy. Right. <clears throat> yeah. The the trouble Alcuin runs into um, is that, according to Charlemagne, mm -hmm. who writes back after this, and is, I think, a little mean. <laughs> he, he at some point asks if, if the monks are really monks at all or if they're just like servants of the devil. And it's like, Charles, please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is a good reminder to Christians generally, because we often get in disputes to not quite go the full Charlemagne when you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and he says that what Alcuin is missing is that the criminal has already been convicted. He's right? been tried. Yeah. And this, I think, Alcuin is missing, like for for great reasons, like he because he is defending the church's prerogative to um heal people mm -hmm. um he does miss the fact that this is sort of uh maybe maybe water in the bridge like the criminal has been tried what they're dealing with is an escaped convict mm -hmm. not who is escaped from the law like from his jailer mm -hmm. um and that in fact that order of justice has already been done. Like it, like a, a condemnation has already happened. Yeah. He did not get sanctuary beforehand, mm -hmm. as it were. And so what Charlemagne is angry about is that uh, Alcuin is perverting the decisions of justice. Mm -hmm. Not because there's not a lot of stuff about like, um, like I am somehow um, the one who decides because Charlemagne accepts the logic of of sanctuary generally 
that there are multiple people who in different contexts decide the fate of the criminal for the good of the whole and for the salvation of his soul. Yeah. And that's the presumption. Yeah. And in fact, he actually later um, rewrites the law giving nod to Alquin in that. Yeah. In a similar way that he changed the law concerning the baptism of pagans in 797, he got rid of the death penalty as like a way of getting people to convert convert. (laughs) effective, but has problems. (laughs) Um, so they're, they're, they're presuming a common world here, right? And it's an argument about about who is supposed to be administering justice. And, and Charlemagne's big worry is like, look, if you uh, sort of pit sanctuary against justice, yeah. then uh, no decision, right, um, could be, every decision could be questioned. Right. right. There's not a respect for the way in which the king is involved in securing the peace uh, and the faith. Right. I'm going to try and defend Alcuin. Go for it. I'll be Charlemagne and be happy. All right. Here we go. <laughs> so so I, I, I would defend him on two two fronts. The, yeah. the first of all is Charlemagne's argument is definitely right. Like there is a union between what everybody is trying to accomplish. But here are two things. First of all, Charlemagne is still getting his sea legs of how to actually be a Christian emperor. You know, he's he's the first of many greats to come. Maybe not the first, but he's he's the he's the biggest one in, in those to come. And and he is still making serious mistakes. He's forcing baptisms, he's forcing forcing ties, he's forcing laws without instructing why the laws are in place. He's not teaching the newly conquered people how to be good. He's controlling them because he doesn't trust them. Mm-hmm. Alquin disagrees with all of this. And in the same way, I think there's some, in a particular case, rather than a general understanding of theory, particular case where Sherman still doesn't have his trust. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing is, it's also very interesting, is that the the criminal is not trying to flee punishment. Mm, yeah. You know, he's trying to flee a certain um, per- people punishing him. Mm. He still goes... To the church and what does he do there he receives confession you know he actually gets to confess to priests of god to a priest of god yeah and he receives a hard bit of penance and this is not when like penance was like you know pray to hail mary's and an our father this is when penance was you're not going to eat anything but bread and drink nothing but water for the next 40 days yeah. you know this is when you're carrying boulders up a hill type thing you yeah, know I mean, some some I mean, this is a little bit later, but uh, sometimes you actually just became a penitent. For the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And and we don't know what happened to this guy, but that was a very live option for him. <laughs> uh, and so I think on kind of those two scores, there might be some particular excuse for um, a real justification, mm-hmm. like serious defense of saying Alquin did the right thing. But, but the general principle of it is I think that you're espousing that Charlemagne espouses is clearly correct. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, this is the Middle Ages yeah. to a T, is that we're all trying to enact Christ's kingdom. The question is, who's responsible for what? Yeah. Now, in modernity, we look back on it and say, okay, what we're really trying to do is gain power over everyone else and be the winner, be the big yeah. dog. And so we're going to all read this as Charlemagne trying to take over the prerogative of the church for the state or something right, like that. Right, right which is baloney. 
Um, but it's sort of how it's the only way we can understand history is as leading to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, so Alcuin, to his credit, never backs down. Like like the letters back and forth between Charlemagne, mm-hmm. you know, he he just reasserts his position every time, um, and that takes cojones. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, as the French would say, as the French would say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, Alcuin, um, what else? No, I want. I kind of almost want to like land, land the ship here for sure. for people. Land the ship, land the plane, whatever it is. Land the spaceship. Nice. That's what I was really going for. <laughs> no parachutes today. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that we really should learn from this guy is is what he says about education as as a baseline of politics because when, when he talks about you know rhetoric is is the um you know at one point he says when, when we're getting to the questions of rhetoric you know um but ad sumum veniamus so we've come to the like the summit of, of education here but what is what is it about he says that it, the matters are in cavilibus questionibus that they're they're political matters that we are talking about today and, and i and i think that, you know, as we're hearing a lot about a different world, uh, a more unified world and like an integrated whole that, that Alcuin is teaching his students who are going off to be kings, going off to be judges, going off to be archbishops, uh, that we need to start to be instructed in, these, in the same way. And I would just say a, cu- a couple quick things about education today in America. Like the first major problem that we have is that we don't really think that there is no contemplative work. We just go into building things. We just go into learning technical skills. We don't ask why we should do something. We just ask how to do it. And, and in the Christian world, and there's a, in the, and it expands from there, there's often a reaction against that to say, no, 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 no. There is a liberal education that frees the soul and that there are some things worth knowing for their own sake. And Alcuin, who is the great founder of Christian schools, <laughs> I mean, he is the point of origin that so many of us really need to look to um, before we even get into the greater universities and the thoughts that go on about them um, deeper into the Middle Ages, is that he looks at that argument and he says, baloney, that all education has to be for our sanctification, that we are not just supposed to have more knowledge, but we are to be a greater Christian with what we have. And so these kind of twin pagan ideals, the um, pure operation of education on the one side and the pure knowledge thing that we have on the other, are both things that Alcuin would say we've gotten wrong that the true education is to lead us to live different, to actually take what we know and to enact it more. Now, he's he's not just saying about practical things here. Right. You know, I mean, this is a guy that has, you know, he studied metaphysics. He studied history deeply. He, he knows the scriptures like the back of his hand. His goal is to incorporate all of the world into the very living word of God, and that is first and foremost about us, turning us into truly spiritual incarnate beings. 
that are then going off to sanctify the world in, in, in kind of the practical ways that now he's giving policy proposals yeah. uh, to, to Charlemagne. Yeah. And so I, I think that just as kind of a, a first you know, vector or directive that we get from Alcuin is um, fleeing from the vice of curiosity in which there is no application for the knowledge that we're learning, but actually take on the political teachings that have been handed on to us so that we can actually begin to convert, reorient, and apply them in our own lives. Yeah, I mean, you see this in Alcuin's life, that he is constantly teaching boys, and he calls them his son. Yeah. Uh, and, and then his sons go out from him, and he retains a relationship with them in mm-hmm. letters, usually where he is their father, and he refers to them as his son. Yeah. Um, and the, the presumption is that their education is now going forth into the world to convert it for Christ. Yeah. Um, and his checking up on them and often rebuking them mm-hmm. is within this context as well. Like there's no, there's no praise that they simply know things, because you can know things and be a monster. Yeah. Uh, so there's praise that the, that the knowledge is sort of sacrificed, as it were, put yeah. made an, into an offering for God. Um, and that's what he's constantly checking up on his sons, yeah. that their I mean, lives are an offering like that. Yeah, just um, see him, I mean, and, and his sons, as we can mention, become really powerful. Yeah. Like he's coming, he's writing to like a Archbishop Simeon, whom he calls his son. Like when I read that the first time, I had to like reread it. I was like, wait, did he just call yeah. the Archbishop his son? Well, he's a deacon, you know? Exactly, yeah. No, so Alcuin uh, remained a deacon all his life. And and this goes to another another point to learn from him is that authority in the church, right, is not as, it cannot be reduced to office. Mm-hmm. The office, again, is the institutionalization of something we love, right? Which is namely that there is an order yeah. by which the by which we convert the world for Christ, right? That we want to make that order last, right? Mm-hmm. And so we give it office. But within that reality, within the reality of hierarchy, within the reality of popes and bishops and priests and deacons and lay people, within that reality, authority is present wherever one is a father to another, where everyone has that power, that knowledge, mm-hmm. wherever there's a debt of love, there's authority. And I think you're going to see this in all of these saints. Like one of the things that characterizes saints is their not rebellious streak by any means, but rather their ability to know when there is true authority, right? Mm-hmm. Catherine of Siena telling the Pope to go back to Rome, mm-hmm. prime example. Mm-hmm. Is she being rebellious? Is she stepping out of line? Absolutely not. Everything within Christianity affirms her, right? Because she has authority precisely in the truth. Yeah. Authority precisely in her virtue. Yeah. And Alcuin is just a living example of this, right? As deacon, he calls out the emperor again and again. As deacon, he writes to bishops and rebukes them for their the lack of holiness in their life, blames them for the woes of the nation yes. because they're not praying and so they're getting invaded by Vikings, as happens. Yeah. And she's having me last week. <laughs> and then tells them to read his letters constantly as a as a sort of form of spiritual reflection on their own sins. Mm. This is a deacon. Now, what you might expect is that we would all have the opinion or, or, or characterization of Alcuin as sort of like an upstart guy who, you know, stuck it to the man and spoke truth to power and all that <laughs> stuff. But it's just, it's, there's nothing in Alcuin that would, that would ever lead anyone to, to justify that kind of, that kind of view. Mm-hmm. In humility and obedience, he knows what true authority is and uses it. When there is a lack of holiness, he is Pope, as it were, over that lack of holiness. 
where there is a lack of virtue, he is king, as it were, over that lack of virtue. He is father to an erring son, and he is unafraid. Maybe a little afraid with Charlemagne. (laughs) Unafraid. And I I think that's marvelous because I think we can forget, especially living within a hierarchical church, that the mission doesn't change, right? The mission is still real interior holiness for everyone. Mm -hmm. And there's no way of mechanizing it, right? The work has to be done. You have to really teach people. Mm -hmm. You have to really preach to them. They have to really be persuaded by the truth. They have to really act out of their hearts. They have to be really corrected when they err. There's no push-button approach for Alcuin, right? There's no baptize and they get it. There's no make a law and then they'll all be Christian. It's it's always everything, Yep. right? The whole life is what's uh, fundamentally at concern. And so I think that's the the great difficulty of, of Christian politics, but also the great hope is that the Christian who does politics is the one who comes and says, no, no, no. I really do want all of you, right? The, these tyrants and totalitarians, they, they say they want all of you, but they don't, right? They, 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 want, some, they want some little sliver, mm-hmm. right? They just want you to be scared enough to kind of get in line. But within Christian politics, right, we want your heart. We want your freedom. Yeah. Which is a, which, but really your freedom, not like your For freedom you've been freedom. free. Yeah, yeah, but like, in fact, your free assent to the truth of the gospel. Um. And Alcuin gives us an to example. know why you're doing the things that the that the authorities are commanding you to do, if it be just, you know, and but, if it's not, to still understand why they're telling you to do the things that you're doing, so that it can be a free and full consent. And it's only through that that you can really have friendship. Yeah, and then only that you can have peace, which is the whole point of what we're trying to do here. Yeah, anyway. one, of the, one of the big things Alcuin drove home, and it became kind of policy within the Carolingian Renaissance, was that um, we're going to not baptize people. Unless either they, if they're old, or their godparents, if they're young, can say the Our Father, can say the Creed, and can explain what they mean. Mm-hmm. Now, this is incredible, right? This just became this became policy. There's even a great story of Charlemagne uh, going visiting a church on Easter where there was some baptisms, stopping the liturgy, going to the godparents and saying, "Say the Creed," and asking them questions about the Creed. And when they couldn't say it or couldn't answer, he said, baptisms are off, find new godparents. Because their view of society, again, it goes back to this crisis, the view of society was one in which it needs to become internal and free. Mm-hmm. And if you're not really, if it's not there, if it's not present internally, then we're not going to get the social order we want. You don't get peace out of robots. You mm-hmm. get peace out of free men. <laughs> and so, and so <laughs> I think it's a good lesson for us, right? Yeah. Because I think that um, it is so tempting to look for easy solutions to look for ways in which people sort of do christianity without the hard work of convincing them to be christians yeah um but alcuin is a hopeful example that it's really possible to do all the work to convert people entirely um and the fruit is the high middle ages yep you know yep so so pray for us alcuin yeah what's the alcuin of york pray for (laughs) Great. Thanks, everybody.